0: 2007, July,- 23 Korean missionaries were held hostage by the Taliban in Afghanistan. Two of them were martyred before the Korean government reached a settlement with terrorists. They paid the ransom, and then the rest of them were released. When they got home, they shared their story. They said the day before they were captured, they already knew. So they gathered to pray. And they all gladly surrendered their lives to God. In fact, some of them were fighting who should die first. They only had one small Bible with them and so they split it into 23 parts. They tore it up so that each missionary can keep one part of the Bible with them. And in the next 40 days, when they're held captive in remote areas in isolation, during torture, they could survive because they had the Word of God and the Holy Spirit. And so some of them even said, don't you wish we were back there? You know, why would they say that? Because in those 40 days of captivity, they experienced such intimacy with God. It was so precious, they were willing to risk it all. It was something they couldn't recapture in the comforts and security of home. Friends, is it possible to have such intimacy with God, to have the abundant life, a life full of joy, a faith that overcomes this world. Well, First John tells us it's possible. In fact, that's what the whole book is about. Can we have this faith that overcomes the world, a life full of joy? And John says it's possible. How? And so he started the book, Walk in God's Light. Don't sin. Now I explained, it doesn't mean we are perfectly sinless. We don't sin at all. This means habitually living in sin. Secondly, love. Love, be other-centered or not self-centered. How? Love others, don't love the world. Chapter 3 tells us, walk as God's children. Do you know how precious it is that God has lavished His love on His children? That is who we are. And then it enters the main point of this book. God is love. Chapter 2 says we love others. Chapter 4 says we love others because God is love. Let me just imagine the different uh, value system or how we look at the world. If you don't believe there's God, right, then what is love? Love is absurd because love is just a chemical reaction. It doesn't make sense. If we believe that many gods, polytheists, gods are like human beings. You know, they are inconsistent. So, the first one is God. love is absurd. This one is love is inconsistent. Because today love, tomorrow not love. What is actually love, we don't really know. And then we believe the monotheist only or one God. Now, of course, within monotheists, not everybody also defines love the same. But true love, true love must have an object, right? If I have nobody to love, I love myself. That's not true love. And so if God there's only one God, then what is love? Which means that before God created anything, He's not love, right? Because there's no one to love. Until He has created something, then God loves somebody. And that is the uniqueness of the Christian God. Because we believe God is Trinity, God the Father loves God the Son, God the Son loves God the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit loves God the Father. Even before creation, God is pre-existent, love is pre-existent. And therefore we say, God is love is the central doctrine of the Christian faith. Why do we love? Because God is love. And can you understand God's love for you? That's John's point. And then he goes on, because of that, we can have assurance. Assurance of this abundant life. Assurance of life full of joy. 1 John 5, you will see what these three assurances. Assurance of being a child of God, our identity. Assurance of Jesus and assurance of answered prayer. And really, the whole point is the second one, Jesus, okay? I just divided into three to make it easier for us. Verse 1 to 5, Assurance in our identity. It says, whoever believes that Jesus is Christ is born of God, whoever loves the Father loves the child born of Him. Who is a child of God? I said this before two weeks ago, right? Not everybody is a child of God. Those who believe, all of us bear the image of God. But sin marked the image. And so, we need the gospel to restore this image. Whoever believes Jesus is Christ is Born of God. And how do you know this? Is when we love others who are born of Him. It means there's love within brothers and sisters. How do you know we love each other? Verse 2 it says, By this we know we love the children of God, right? A continuation of verse 1. How? When we love God and observe His commandments. So we know we love each other. It's not indulgent love. It's not that we ignore each other, so we don't hold each other accountable. He said, When we love each other, when we love God and obey His commandments. We love in God's truth. And how do you know you're really observing God's commandment? He says, for this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. His commandments are not burdensome. So we ask ourselves, you know, is God's commandments burdensome to you? Some of us, we feel, wow, God's commandments are very burdensome. Cannot do this, cannot do that. Want to restrict me. Now the truth is, we are all restricted by something. Restricted by the world, by our flesh, by Satan. When God gives us His commandments, His truth is to give us freedom, not to restrict us. God tells us what we do not do to give us this frame and within the frame, we have freedom. You want to play basketball well, you follow the rules, you use your hands, you use your feet to kick it, you cannot play the game well. Likewise, you want to experience abundant life full of joy, the Creator of life gives us these rules and within We experience freedom. That's why Jesus says, believe the truth and the truth will set you free. So friends, if we think that God's commandments are very burdensome, He's trying to restrict me, that means we do not understand God's love enough. When we cross those boundaries, you find that you are enslaved. You face the consequences. A few days ago, I was talking to this guy who's not a believer. He says, you know, now in my religion, I go to the place of worship once a month or once in half a year. If I become a Christian, every week I must come, you know, it's a commitment. And I thought, that's exactly how I felt when I was not a Christian. But now, you know, I become a Christian, suddenly, it's not a burden. Why? Because there's relationship, there's love. Just like the last one year plus, right, every day I say, oh, yeah, I got to wake up so early, 6 o'clock, drive my kids to school. Although I complain and whine, actually, I'm doing it willingly, right? Why? Oh, because I'm the father, because there's a relationship. If I don't have a relationship with this person, I totally don't care about them. Do you think I'll do that? No. So scripture tells us, if we truly love God's children, we love God by obeying His commandments. And this obedience is not painful. is not burdensome. And you ask yourselves, do you find it burdensome? For, for however, whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. What? Our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So John chapter 1, he says, you want a joy, a life full of joy? He goes on to say how? And then he ends in chapter 5, you want the faith that overcomes the world, the abundant life. These are all synonyms. Okay, or at least they overlap. To be able to face challenges in life and we choose joy to overcome the world is how? By faith. Trusting who? Trusting that Jesus is the Son of God. So it brings us to the second point, which is actually the main point. We can have assurance in our identity because of what Jesus did. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not with water only, but with water and the blood. Why is John saying this? By water, referring to the time Jesus was baptized, by blood was the time He died. He emphasizes both by water, blood, not just at His baptism. Because at that time, there were some uh, false teachers because of their Greek background. Matter is body is bad, uh, spirit is good. They said that Jesus is only divine, you know, on earth. But when he died on the cross, his divinity left him. And so he died as a man because how can God die? John is saying it's not true. Jesus died fully man, fully God. And why is this so important? Because if Jesus wasn't fully God, then He has no qualifications to die for us. I often say, I cannot die for you. And I cannot say, God, I want to die for Him. I cannot because I'm a sinner. I'm not perfect. All of us are sinners. Sin in the Bible is defined as not perfect because God is perfect. And so, none of us are qualified. Throughout history, there's nobody qualified to die in our place except the One who is God or very God Himself, Jesus And so He's not only fully God, He's fully man. He understands, He identifies with our struggles. And so John emphasizes this point. Jesus died. When He died, He was fully the Son of God. These are some evidences, we'll jump over. And he continues, it is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit the water, the blood, and three are in agreement. He says the Holy Spirit in us testify to that truth. Jesus died and resurrected. Now why did he talk about these three in agreement? He goes on to say, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For the testimony of God is what? Is this, that He has testified about His Son. See, at that time, if your evidences are to be accepted in a court, you need three witnesses. So John is saying, we already have three witnesses from God, the Spirit, the blood, the water. If with three witnesses in our human court, we can accept the evidence, what more? How much greater is God's testimony that we should accept? What did God testify about? Concerning His Son. The one who believes is in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar. Because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning His Son. What is this testimony? And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life and this life is in His Son. Because you have a place of faith in Jesus, we have eternal life. Now, what is eternal life? We all believe, right, Jesus? We want eternal life. That's our biggest reward, but what is it? If you can't define it, how do we live it? You know, in Greek, when it comes to life, there are two words, bios and zoe. Bios, which is where we get our word biological. Zoe, zoological. Bios means the life in the flesh. When you stop breathing, no more bios. Zoe refers to the quality of the life. It includes your biological life, but more, and then some. That is why every time you talk about abundant life, life that is truly life, life that overcomes eternal life, it uses the word zoe. And so this life... Is characterized by the fullness, a relationship with God, being able to choose peace and joy in the midst of all these trials. Then when does eternal life begin? He who has the Son has the life. When do you have the life? When you believe in Jesus, when you're born again, when you're sealed with the Spirit. These are events that happen at the same time. Something changes in you. You're born again. You have the Son. You have the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. So, if eternal life begins now, are you you experiencing it? You see, if eternal life for us is a ticket to heaven, meaning I only enjoy after I die, I'm waiting for it, then in this world, we are constantly trying very hard because we don't know how what we will be when we stand before God. We are afraid. And in that case, in our minds, the image of God is that of an angry judge because one day we will be judged by Him. Whether we are conscious or not, that's what we are doing. But if eternal life begins now, it's the here and now, it's different, right? Because we are already have it, we are enjoying this life and God is not an angry judge but He is like a father, like a father looking for his lost son, like a shepherd looking for his lost sheep. So it changes the whole paradigm of who God is. So friends, if we understand eternal life begins now, are we experiencing it? What are you using your life to pursue? Every day, are you just going day by day, breathing, working, earning money so you can enjoy yourself and do whatever you want? If my life is not much meaning, you give minimal effort to cruise through life, your mediocre dreams, pursuing materialism that cannot fulfill or mindless entertainment? Or are we choosing, choosing to rely on God, choosing joy, having peace despite the circumstances, knowing that actually whatever you're doing as a student, uh, looking after your family or at work, there is an eternal significance. You are there for a purpose, not just to make money, not just to complete the task. You have a mission. Through our good work, we testify about who God is. I mean, in August, we're having Alpha, right? We cannot wait till a week or two before, then we go invite. People respond to invitation when they see our lives. Meaning consistently, they're asking, why is this person joyful? Why are people having peace despite all these pressures? Why are they having values that are so different? That is eternal life. It begins right now. So do we have this assurance? John says we can. Our assurance as child of God, assurance because we have this because of what Jesus did for us. We are saved by grace, but we are also kept by grace. A daily walk of following Christ is by grace on what He has accomplished. Therefore, Paul says, fight the good fight. Take hold of the eternal life. He didn't say, wait. Wait till you die. Enjoy eternal life. He said, take hold. It's active. Are we grabbing on to our eternal life? Enjoying that life? The third assurance we have is answered prayers. So verse 14, after he talked about why he wrote the book, so that we, ha- we can know Jesus is the Son of God and we have et- this eternal life, he says, this is the confidence which we have before Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from Him. Pray according to the will of God. Two weeks ago, Paul said this, I mean, John said this, whatever we receive from Him because we keep His commandments, do the things that are pleasing in His sight. I said I'll explain today. Right? When we try to understand the topic, we need to take out different parts of the Bible, what it says about this, what it says about prayer. John says, when you obey Him, obey His commandments, you know, He responds to us. John 5, he says, pray according to the will of God. Of course, in James says, you don't have because you don't ask, you ask and don't have because, wrong motives. So when we pray, we need to pray specifically but with the right motives. So we need to pray according to the will of God. But does everything God will happen? What do you think? Does everything that God will and desire happen? No, not really. Scripture tells us God is patient, not wishing that any shall perish but all to come to repentance. But does everybody come to repentance? No. So there's certain Parts of God's will that He desires, but He gives us this free will to respond. How it works, I don't know. But clearly, He desires this, but not everybody is going to repent. So when we say pray according to God's will, to just try to, it's not, of course, not easy to understand, but simply, there's this part about God's will, we say general revealed will, which is the Bible. You want to know God's will, we read the Bible, through that we understand, we pray according to it. And then there's God's specific will in each of our lives. That one is a mystery we don't know. That's why we pray. That's why we talk to God. And that's why as we pray for something, we say, God, if you are willing, do this. Some people say when we pray with faith, don't say we are willing. God, do it, just believe. Now, I think that's not correct, okay? Because Jesus himself, when Jesus prayed, he said what? Not my will, but yours be done. And so we pray according to God's will. What do we pray for? Now there's many things you can pray for but in 1 John he specifically says not just pray anything you want but pray for a brother who is sinning. So you can pray according to God's will you know you'll respond if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sin not leading to death. Then there is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make requests for this. All unrighteousness is sin and there's sin not leading to death. What's sin leading to death and not leading to death? What is he talking about? See the last verse, it says, all sin is unrighteousness. So the truth is, all sin leads to death. Right? But at the same time, it's true that there's no sin that God cannot forgive. Correct? So, this is saying that when you're somebody sinning, pray for them so that they can repent, God can forgive. What is the one sin in the Bible? God doesn't forgive. It's when we don't believe Jesus is Messiah, when we stand before God, right? The only thing that qualifies us is Jesus, His finished work on the cross. In the Bible, there's one part that says, if if we blaspheme the Holy Spirit, God will not forgive. And so there's this website, called Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. People are recording themselves cursing the Holy Spirit, you know, as if to demonstrate their courage, But actually to me, they are demonstrating their ignorance. Because when you read that part of the Bible about blasphemy the Holy Spirit, Jesus was talking to the Pharisees. He says, you should know, you know the Old Testament, Messiah comes in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so when Jesus was performing those miracles, the Pharisees were saying, this is not from the Holy Spirit, this is from those evil spirits. Jesus rebukes them by saying, you're blaspheming the Holy Spirit. It's not forgivable. It's actually, they are rejecting Jesus as Messiah. So actually, it's consistent. There's no sin. All sin leads to death. There's no sin God cannot forgive. When we stand before God one day, what qualifies us for salvation, what qualifies us to be a child of God now is our faith in Jesus Christ. It's the Holy Spirit who causes the change, transformation to give us to be born again into the kingdom of God. These are two events that happen simultaneously when we make the decision of faith and God bonds us into His kingdom. And so this whole thing, John is saying, pray for people to repent. But then there's, there's why he said, I do not say he should make requests. He didn't say, don't pray for those who are hardening. If this person keeps rejecting and keep hardening, he says, maybe you shouldn't, you should stop. Okay, we don't know why he said that. Okay, Maybe it's like Paul saying to the Corinthians, right? This, this guy who is having relations with his stepmother, he says, forget it, just hand him over to Satan. But whatever the case is, this point here is that we have this direct access to God, and the question is: Are we enjoying this relationship that we can commune with God to tell Him our needs? Louise Spoon shares this story. She said, "God, I need one hundred fifty-three dollars and twenty-seven cents by two p.m. today, and it's already one30 You know, when she said this, she was sitting in a car parked in uh, the mall of a, the parking lot of a mall. She needed this amount of money to go to buy an air ticket, to fly to another state for a conference. It was a medical conference on a very rare disease. She caught it after her cancer treatment. And it it caused her so much pain. Even though she's not a medical profession, her doctor seeing her her in so much pain had made all the arrangements for her to attend the conference. He paid all the expenses except the air ticket. So she knew from the beginning It was going to be hard for her to come up with this money because she spent most of her money on the cancer treatment. But she says, God, I believe you opened this door. It's an opportunity for me to understand my sickness. And if you have given me this opportunity, you will provide. Back then, when the disciples had to pay taxes, you brought them to a lake. And the first fish that they caught had enough money in his mouth to pay the taxes. And so, God, where is my lake? And so she was praying, right? Then she saw this car pulling out of the parking lot. She knew the lady driver. It was a lady who has been attending her uh, church Sunday luncheon. She has been attending for months, but they have not talked before. The lady took a du- made a double take. She looked at her, turned away and looked at her again. And then the car slowed down. Then it sped up. Then it slowed down. And finally, it came to a stop right in the middle of the road. She didn't even park the car. She came out and walked towards Louis. So Louis lowered the window. So she introduced herself. She said, I'm Beverly. You know, I'm from your church. So Louis nodded. Then the lady stammered. She says, um, I don't know how to explain to you, but a few months ago, God moved my heart to, to put some loose change into this envelope for you. Ever since I've been adding to it, because I couldn't muster up enough courage to give the envelope to you. But today when I saw you, I was so burdened that I had to give you this envelope. And so she says, I hope you're not offended by my actions, but I just need to obey God. So she handed the envelope to her and then she ran back to her car, even before Louis could respond. Louis looked at the once white envelope now covered with smudges and stains with a name on it. She poured out the contents, there were dollar notes, there were coins, and there was a card explaining why she did this and it was dated several months ago. And Louis started to tear up. Says God, you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. Back then, you provided for the disciples from a lake. Today, is a lady. Instead of a fish, it's an envelope. An envelope containing $153.27. Not a cent more, not a cent less. You know, when we hear stories like this, wow, our hair stand up. We say, yeah, bored really not? But as I think of this story, I'm also reminded of the several times God has worked in my life in the same way. And I've shared many times with you also. I'm not going to do it, okay? I think you also see it already. But as I look back, I think those times where I experienced God's provision is when I was responding to God to step out in faith, to step out in obedience, to come into a point where actually you have no control. You need to rely on God. And that is when we experience that God comes through for us if we are always in control of our lives, if we are always in our secured environment, in our comfort zones, we will never understand why those Korean missionaries will say they are willing to give up their freedom and life just to experience the intimacy with God. John tells us it is possible to have this abundant life. It is possible to experience life that is truly life. We need to take hold of it. We have this assurance because we have salvation because of Jesus. Jesus did it for us, He will continue to keep it for us. And hence, because of Jesus, we have this assurance. It comes out with our identity as His child in our answer prayers, in having a relationship with God. And so again, we ask, are we enjoying that relationship, that assurance in Christ, that faith that overcomes the world? Or are you constantly being overwhelmed by life, feeling that you're just living day by day, you're going there just to work to make money so that you can do what you like? No, life has a purpose. Eternal life begins the moment we are born again in Christ. Then John ends the book with these three commands. He says, don't sin, don't stop trusting Jesus, don't worship idols. We know no one who is born of God sins and he who was born of God keeps him. There's a, trans- a bit of translation issue here, I think. Another translation reads, no one who is born of God sins and he who uh, doesn't sin keep- keeps himself. Meaning, as we don't, Live a life of sin. You know, we are, protect, we, are, we, are keep, we are protecting ourselves. God watches over us. The idea is this. Actually, he re- is a recap of chapter 1, right from the beginning. He says, you want a life full of joy? Don't live a life of sin. Sin will tell us, nobody knows. Just come. I promise you, you will enjoy momentary pleasures. But sin always over-promises and under-delivers. Bert Hunter is a photojournalist. He shared this story that he said he'll never forget. He was un- interviewing this snake charmer. He said to her, you know, you live, it, you, you live in such a nice place. Just clearly you're wealthy and you look good. Why are you involved in such a dangerous business of handling or charming poisonous snakes? She laughed and she said, I'm doing this not because I have to, but because I enjoy the danger. It gives me a sense of, real, it makes me feel alive one day I will stop, I will spend more time in my garden, gardening I can quit at any time so Bert took her pictures and she was just handling those snakes Then she said, now don't move, okay, I'm going to take out this new snake, it's very poisonous and it's not used to my touch yet so she took it out, but the cobra stiffened his body and then she whispered, she whispered to Bert she says, don't make a sound don't move, something is wrong let me put the snake back. But before she could do it, the snake sunk its fangs into her arm. She winced in agony. But calmly, she put the snake into a basket. Then she told Bert, go to the medical box and re- go and get the snake serum. And Bert wrote in his article, "He says, my heart was pounding, I was sweating, I was nervous. I was rummaging through all the stuff. And I found this vial of snake serum. Then I, she instructed me how to use the syringe to t- take out the serum. And in my state of panic, I accidentally crushed the veil. The serum oozed through my fingers onto the floor. And I said to her apologetically, I said, I'm so sorry. Where can I get more serum? And she said in a quiet voice, that was the last of it. A few minutes later, she died in agony. And Bert, in the last part of his article, he wrote, I will never forget what she said. I can always quit. We think we can always quit. We think nobody will know, but when you want to quit, you realize that sin will not let you go. At the end of the day, when we sin, we bear the consequences of death and brokenness. Death of a relationship. Death of a career. Death of your reputation. Death of your family. Death of your soul. You don't believe? We just look at what's happening in our parliament, right? You know the guy who worships down the road? And again, I always say we are not here to judge, but can you imagine the pain he's putting himself, his family, his church, his God through? That is why John says, You want joy, full of joy, full of joy, the faith that overcomes. Don't sin, don't live in darkness continually, habitually. When we occasionally sin, what do we do? First John tells us, Repent. Then he goes on to say, we don't sin, we know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We know that the Son of God has come. He has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God, eternal life. He brings us back to the, whole, the sum of the whole thing, Jesus. Remember chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, He says how you should live. Chapter 4, he says, we can live like that and enjoy this fullness of life because God is love. Chapter 5 is telling us how, why is God's love we can experience because Jesus. And so we will not lose your salvation when you sin. You will not lose your identity as a child of God, your position, but it affects our relationship. So Spurgeon says, Christians can never sin cheaply. They pay a heavy price for inequity. Transgression destroys peace of mind, obscures fellowship with Jesus, hinders prayer, Bring darkness over the soul. Finally, he ends. Little children, guard yourself with idols. Every time I read here, I continue to scroll, eh? No more. Or oh, you turn the page last time, eh? Why no more? Why, why just end like that? You know, a typical Greek epistle, a Greek letter, always ends with a prayer. Thank you, thank this person, thank that person, I'll come and see you. Some, he will say something, but in John, he just ends. Don't worship idols. Why? the more I think about it, the more I get it. If the whole purpose of the book is for us to enjoy this relationship with God, the main thing that prevents us from enjoying relationship with God is sin. What is sin? If you think about the Ten Commandments that represents what God desires, the first few is to love God, the rest, love people, right? The first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. Don't worship idols. Which means if we cannot, if we sin, we transgress the rest of the commandments, right? Don't honour your parents, you lie, you kill or whatever. It's because you fail on number one. Because we have idols in our lives. What are idols? Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, The greatest danger and enemy that confronts us is not a matter of deeds or of actions, but of idolatry. An idol is anything in our lives that occupies the place that should be occupied by God alone anything that takes the place of God in our lives. An idol is anything that's central in my life, anything that seems to be essential. An idol is anything by which I live on, which I depend. Anything that moves and rouses and attracts and stimulates me is an idol. An idol is anything that I worship, anything to which I give much of my time and attention, my energy, my money, anything that holds a controlling position in my life is an idol. What takes the place of God in our lives? I must get the job. I must have this standard of living. I must get married. I must have children. What is it that we place before God that we must have, that he controls the rest of our lives that we don't have, we feel miserable? So you think about those things you're struggling with. Those things that cause you to be discontent with God, ultimately is an idol. And an idol doesn't just mean bad things. Many times for us it's good things that we make ultimate. That's what Timothy Keller says. Good things made ultimate. And so in my pastor's voice, I share with you the story of Augustine, right? Ultimately, Augustine says the essence of sin is disordered love. Disordered love, that's idolatry. Disordered love is, means that we often love less important things more, and more important things less than we ought to. The wrong prioritization leads to unhappiness and disorder in our lives. How do we get over disordered love? That is when we understand God's love for us. That is why this whole book of John is structured this way. It tells us how we can enjoy this abundant life, the faith that overcomes the world tells us it's God's love that transforms us because ultimately the issue is idolatry, disordered love, then we can only reorder our loves by understanding true love. And we have this true love because of Jesus. And so as we come to the end of the book, we say, what is love? Trying to define what is love, right? This whole year we talk about love because our theme is on outreach. Outreach is not just making us go share the gospel, but out of we understand God's love, we want to share it we understand the love of the Father for us. You know, my I, my twins, right? I did IVF to have children, right? So before, I think a month before they, my wife gave birth, I had a nightmare. I dreamt that they came out they were black. Okay, because the time I stayed in America, I thought the lab mess. I really had a nightmare. Okay, you all don't laugh. I woke up in sweat. I told my doctor. A few weeks later, or maybe a month, when the delivery, on the delivery day, We were in the OR because it's twins, you know, anytime if natural birth cannot work, must cut open, right? So we were there. I was mocked up. I was holding a scissors in my hand ready to cut the umbilical cord. It was really tense, right? My wife has been like in labor for many hours. A few strangers are staring between her open legs. And then suddenly my doctor says, hey, your child has a head full of golden hair. I said, what? Now he remembered my fear. He parked it away. And at the right moment, he took it out. So after this, I often say, I should not have paid him, even though he did it free for me. Anyway, when the babies came out, I mean, they didn't look like babies at first because they were like less than 2 kg, you know. I could lift up each of them in, in my palm. This was the first day, right? They were slimy, crying, don't have any baby fat, so all bones. And they, they couldn't do anything for me, right? They were just, Eah! But in that moment, I realized For the rest of my life, I'll be willing to lay down my life anytime for them. And friends, that's exactly how God looks at us. If only we can bottle up that feeling. That's how God looks at us. Helpless, ugly, we can't do anything for Him, but yet He loves us enough to lay down His life for us and He did! 2,000 years ago on the cross. And if we have that love of the Father, may the Spirit of God transform our hearts of disordered loves so that Christ may take first place in our lives. Let's pray. I just give, give us a time of meditation to respond to God in prayer. Let's pray for Holy Spirit to pour forth, as Paul would say, pour forth God's love abundantly into our hearts. Let the love of God recapture our hearts, reorder our loves, that we truly see Christ lifted up. This is your time, and at an appropriate time, the worship team will lead us.